welcome everybody to Media Sandwich, a podcast where we peruse the news of the entertainment industry specifically. And we take all the morsels from those that we love the best and we slap them all together and make a sandwich out of them on a freshly baked piece of homemade audio. And that's what this is in your ears. I am Kyle Martinak, and this is my show, and it's late. It's a very it's a late show this week because uh I've been dealing with some stuff since last time I recorded, uh, uh, broke my foot, which was, which was just great. And, uh, I've also had a sick kid. So last night, uh, Monday night, I was like, oh, do I record? Do I not record? Uh, I got a kid with a fever and, oh, whoops, uh, something, another piece of news dropped. And I was like, well, I better involve that. But that comes at the end of the show. So stick around for that. But first we'll get into the video game news. And uh, here's the thing, a big caveat about video game news. I don't know anything about, well, video games. But I also don't know anything about eSports, specifically. I know that League of Legends is a thing, and that thing is big business. Uh, so much so that entire corporations now exist solely to promote and support eSports teams. The same way, like, professional sports franchises work. And that's cool. That's something I'm kind of just getting into learning about. But there's a flip side to that coin, and that is the amount of scrutiny that public figures associated with the esports companies are subject to. So I want to get this straight because it's like an actual news item. Riot Games is going to overhaul their league system for uh, Valorant. Is it Valorant? Valorant? I don't know. A game I haven't played, but it's a very big game for uh, for esports. Uh, hence, you know, it's a Riot Games uh, project. But they're going to overhaul the league system to resemble what they have for League of Legends already. Like, you know, with uh, separate tiers and a limited number of spots in the top tier for pro teams that play in the International League year-round and receive a regular stipend from Riot for their competitive play. So this is the big time, the bi the biggest of the big time in esports, and wow, one of the top ten esports companies in the world, G two Esports, just lost their clinched slot in this league. Why? Well, their CEO Carlos Rodriguez has decided to pal around with known internet creepazoid Andrew Tate going so far as to post videos of himself popping champagne with him, smoking cigars with him, and then, upon being called out for being buddies with a misogynist douchebag, he doubled down in a series of posts about how he, he won't be told who he can and cannot party with. Okay. Smooth move, my dude. Uh, you just magnetically attracted enough bad press that Riot Games who, I mean, admittedly, they've had their own share of bad press in recent months and years. Riot Games decided that they don't want to do business with you anymore. Uh, they released their list of official partners for this new league, and G2 isn't on it. You see, uh, Riot has a history of sexual harassment within their company. It's been well-reported and well-documented, and they have a new, a very public mandate now to change their corporate culture and their image by emphasizing diversity, supportive environments, safe environments, and 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 not associating with Andrew Tate. Um, so yeah, G two just took a really massive business hit because of that. Because this was uh, this was a very 
big piece of their income. Uh, it's a terrible situation for the poor schmucks who actually do the work over at G2 to keep the company rolling. The IT people, you know, uh, office folks, because that's it's a sizable portion of the company's income for the foreseeable future that just dried up instantly. Why? Because the CEO is a dum-dum, that's why. Rodriguez was initially put on a two-month leave without pay, but then G2 decided to go ahead and just make that a permanent leave and fired his ass. Mostly because, well, he gave a really lame kiss-off apology eventually, which he posted, and then he proceeded to continue to like tweets or posts that were pro-Andrew Tate. By the way, if you're listening to this going, what's the issue? Who the hell is Andrew Tate? I'm not a teenage incel, so I've never heard that name before. Yeah, me too. Uh, I had to really look up who this is, and then I needed to uh, blast my cache, delete my search history forever, and scrub my eyes for a few hours, because Andrew Tate is gross. He's basically the next evolution in the red pill slash pickup artist bullshit that the internet thing of weird toxic you know ma toxic masculinity and just outright misogyny uh instead of living on reddit or 4chan or some other moldy nasty corner of the internet though this guy is right out on front street he's one of the biggest things on tiktok right now so his videos have been watched and shared literally like over a billion times he's big big news who actually is he He's a dumbass failed kickboxer and a Big Brother contestant. He's a bald British guy who is very, very concerned with everybody taking him seriously as a masculine, manly man. That's his entire credentials. His whole CV is internet influencer who wasn't interesting enough to be on British reality TV. And that's saying something. But... He's got this entire cigar-puffing, sports cars, and nickel-plated guns, badass playboy image. He styles himself as like a life coach whose philosophy is mostly about being a horrible person to women specifically. He, he uh, refers to women as females exclusively. Um, he, uh, honestly... Any guy who refers to women as females like that is strange. No good, very bad, don't do it. But he's making decent money teaching primarily young boys and men that uh, women only belong in the kitchen. They're the property of the male authority figure in their life. It's okay to hit or choke a woman if she gets out of line. He's a world-class turd, and unfortunately he's got the ear of a lot of impressionable gamer kids who ended up on his stuff because, you know, they wanted to play video games and watch videos about playing video games. Because the guy, I think he might do, like, a, a stream as well. I don't know, I didn't dig that far. But anyway, yeah, world-class turd, this Andrew Tate. And Riot Games, rightfully, is like, uh, maybe we shouldn't play Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon with such a raging torpedo of dick. And yeah, they shouldn't especially if they want to actually change their public image after all of the, you know, troubles that they've been having. So yeah, because the literal CEO of a literal esports company, uh, uh, he wanted so much to be buddies with this dime store Jason Statham character. Now the actual valuable employees of G2 are probably looking at possible layoff situations, I would imagine. Great. 
awesome, totally normal things happening uh, in the world of video games, as always. Speaking of totally normal things happening in the world of video games, did you hear that the FBI and the UK's Cyber Crime Unit, which is a thing, uh, and the London Police, they all collaborated to, arre- to arrest a 17-year-old hacker for allegedly being the Grand Theft Auto 6 leaker. And that teenager goes by the handle Zero Cool. No, no, they do not. <laughs> but that this is kind of crazy, though, right? It sounds but like a bizarre viral marketing for a reboot of the movie Hackers. It's a teenage kid who was arrested in Oxfordshire and is uh, suspected of being connected to a, a big hacker group who first cropped up last year when they get ready for this shit. They hacked the Brazilian government's Ministry of Health. Okay, so that's a natural progression point, you know, hacking a government ministry and then hacking Rockstar Games. Uh, (laughs) Hackers are, they like anarchy, so I guess it makes sense to them. Anyway, since then, this hacker group has been involved in other uh, quote-unquote digital intrusions perpetrated on Microsoft, Uber, Cisco, Samsung, NVIDIA... Okay, there I'm detecting a pattern. Someone on Twitter said this, but I found it very funny and worth noting, that the FBI found this hacker in like four days after the footage dropped uh, last week of Grand Theft Auto 6, and yet the FBI has not yet concluded their investigation into Jeffrey Epstein's Little Black Book. Uh, After two years and multiple public record photos showing that guy with people who we recognize... um, that's interesting. Uh, somebody gets Special Agent Johnny Utah on the case, uh, or whoever arrested the notorious Grand Theft Auto leaker, uh, who I maintain might be Zero Cool. Moving right along into movie news, uh, we got some horror-related stuff, because October's right here at our doorstep already. It's nuts. Uh, so yeah, we got some spookies. Uh, for starters, in spookies, did you know... We haven't had a Final Destination sequel since 2011? That's so long ago already. Uh, And that movie felt, you know, that one was actually pretty good, I thought. Um, Yeah, so we haven't had one in over 10 years until now. The original franchise producer Craig Perry returns, along with a lot of help from a bunch of other professors. I almost said professors. Uh, But I meant producers, a bunch of other producers including John Watts of the Spider-Man uh, Home trilogy, the, you know, uh, the Tom Holland trilogy. Uh, he he turned down directing the Fantastic Four movie, or he left due to quote-unquote creative differences, a.k.a. my paycheck needs to be bigger or something, and he decided to jump on this instead uh, as a producer, not as a director. Uh, He's co-producing, and John Watts also wrote the original treatment for the script, which is being written by uh, Guy Busick and Lori Evans-Taylor. They are the writers of Ready or Not, as well as the most recent Scream movie, uh, the fifth Scream movie, which was really damn good as well. So, you know what? Final Destination 6 is off to a roaring start. Uh, and, And now, the big news this week... The directing gig has been given to a couple of really passionate dudes, Zach Lipovsky and Adam B. Stein, probably mangling at least one name in this, but those guys are the duo behind the 2018 sci-fi thriller called 
Freaks. I haven't seen it, but it was a big deal at the Toronto International Film Festival that year, and it did really well on Netflix. It made it to their top 10 when they when they dropped it on there. I'm certainly encouraged when I read this story. They sound like the right people to get involved with it. And, and apparently the job was pretty much theirs already, but on a final Zoom call with the producers and with the uh, executives from New Line, these directors used live and pre-recorded video to first stage an out-of-control fire and then and then stage their own decapitation by way of a falling ceiling fan. Just as a goof, just as a, like, look what we can do, let us play with this franchise kind of message. Like a real mic drop. And, wow, that's... What can I say? That's true art right there. That's so cool and weird and kooky of them. Um, it's It's like... It's like if the two horror nuts from summer school got to direct a movie finally. So, cool. Uh, Final Destination 6 coming probably late next year or maybe first half of 2024. I'm not sure. I don't think they've dropped a date yet. But I'm happy to see it uh, come back. It's a really inventive franchise. And now, it sounds like they have really inventive directors to go with it. And they really care about the franchise from the sounds of things. So... Good on them. Good good for us all. Good for this family. Uh, <laughs> anyway, next on the docket, remember how we got to talking about Matt Shackman's taking over of the next uh, Star Trek movie? Well, we got some details now, and it's a big swing. It's a real big swing. Pretty much the biggest swing since 2009's J.J. Abrams reboot in terms of breaking the glass on the biggest tools the franchise has. So uh, this is per giantfreakingrobot.com uh, and their quote-unquote secret sources, so take it with a grain of salt. Uh, but they're talking about how somebody close to Paramount Pictures is talking fourth movie in the Kelvin timeline with, you know, the cast that we've known that was very hard to get back together because they're all super famous now. Uh, the fourth movie will feature appearances from the Next Generation crew. So Picard, LaForge, Data, Riker, Crusher, the whole schmear. They're coming, they're coming, and it's going to essentially, much like 1994's uh, Star Trek Generations, it's going to be, a f it's going to function as kind of a backdoor pilot for a movie franchise for the next generation characters to continue so that Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, Zoe Saldana, Simon Pegg, Carl Urban, all of those folks probably don't have to show up for another one after this one. It's going to be a, a baton passing, the same way that Generations was. And because this still takes place in the alternate timeline with that little asterisk next to it, so that they can mess around with character stuff, it's going to be entirely new actors. And they can fudge around with everything the same way they did in 2009 without ruining the, you know, pristine... Uh, canon of star trek that fans are so protective of big swing big swing right big risk because fans are probably gonna hate this the hardcore like star trek zealots probably not gonna like this news that tng crew are arguably more beloved at this point than the original crew i would say uh but you know they're done after this last season of picard that's gonna show up uh, I think all of the Next Generation actors might be done permanently. Except for Will Wheaton. He'll show up for anything you want him to show up for. 
And God bless him for doing so. That's a guy who doesn't care that he is Wesley Crusher. Uh, but I don't know. I think this is a smart way of keeping the bombastic blockbuster movie franchise alive without having to go through the rigmarole of gathering that cast up. Cause they're all busy now. Chris Pine was, he's in a bunch of stuff. He just, I mean, he just did don't worry, darling, the less said about that movie, the better, I guess at this point, but he's got a dungeons and dragons franchise starter coming up soon in a couple of months. Uh, Carl Urban has the boys on Amazon now. Zoe Saldana is back in the Avatar world. Uh, you know, Simon Pegg's in Mission Impossible movies. It's hard to get all of those people together anymore, right? But I'm wondering, who do you cast for this? Who do you... What do you do with next generation characters with younger actors now? I mean, probably un unknowns is always the best idea across the board, right? Bring in somebody with no baggage, nobody that we're going to recognize from something else so it's distracting and whatnot. I'll tell you this. I'm going to get weird with you. Right off the top of my head, somebody I defend a lot, and he requires a lot of defending, unfortunately, in terms of his acting, not in terms of as a person. I hear he's a lovely person. Taylor Kitsch. Uh, Tim Riggins from Friday Night Lights, if you will. Uh, but, you know, of course, he also was John Carter of Mars. Oof. He was the lead in Battleship. Oof. Then he tried to take a dramatic turn, and he was one of the leads in True Detective. Season 2. Oof. Uh, that was kind of his third strike, and he was out. Until, more recently, he played David Koresh in the Waco miniseries, and he was really good in it. He was really terrific. Uh, it was a different character for him to play, but he's been doing like some uh, some Canadian TV shows lately. I saw on his IMDb he's a couple of shows I've never heard of, and they look they look like maybe none of them have made it past season one. But I think I think that he would be Taylor Kitsch would be a terrific William Riker. Have him grow the beard. And he's, he's right at the right age for it, I think. He's got kind of that swagger, that energy. He's got a playful energy about him if you let him. If you don't just make him stoic, don't make him square jaw action man. Let him be a little, a little bit, you know, goofy. Let him be a little, you know, uh, you know, let, let him throw a little mustard on it. I think he'd be a pretty good William Riker. Uh... And, and I want him to have a comeback. He's had a few false starts in movies. This would be the perfect way to use his strengths and use his fairly big name and big recognizable face, you know, without it overshining the rest of the cast. He uh, He's also pretty rough and tumble. He could do a lot of great action sequences. And he can play, you know, being haunted by tough decisions. Uh, he's a man of authority and presence. He's a big dude. I don't know. I just, I feel like that one would work. I might be crazy. Tell me if I'm crazy. But anyways, another one I'll put out there. If they decide to include Wesley Crusher, they might decide not to because of fans, you know, not caring for Wesley Crusher. I never really had a problem with the character. Yeah, he's the kid. Of course, he's going to act like a kid and kids, you know, in, in that situation, you're going to have adults who are like, ugh, kids. I don't understand why fans hated Wesley Crusher so much, but granted, I was a kid when that show first aired, so of course, I probably liked him better than most. 
But if you're going to include Wesley Crusher, if you're going to do Teenager Flying the Ship, get this kid, Johnny DiCenzo from Cobra Kai. Uh, he plays the nerd kid, Dimitri. He'd be a great Wesley Crusher. He conveys intelligence, kind of a timid nature. He'd be a really fun foil to a stern Captain Picard. Or even to, like, you know, picture Taylor Kitsch doing his kind of, like, rough, you know, Tim Riggins, like, scowly stuff next to that kid who's, like, nervous and shaking and stuff. I think that'd be fun. I think it'd be funny. Um, who do you get to play Picard? That's really too hard for me. I don't think I can pull off casting anybody as Picard, but how about we try to choose a Troy really fast? Deanna Troy, I mean, she needs to be empathetic, of course, kind of regal, but disarming, very strong, committed to her mission and her values. Just like a really, a, a real intellectual pool of, of energy. Uh, would Alicia Vikander be too big of a name for that role? I don't know, but she's not as busy since apparently she's not doing a Tomb Raider. So that's who I I would love her to be, Troy. And imagine her, her and Taylor Kitsch. Hey, that's something. We got something going on there. I don't know. Uh, send me your casting ideas in an email or a tweet, and I'll tell you if I like them or not. Tell me I'm crazy for my choices. Help me out with a Picard casting. That one's way too hard. I don't know how to do that, but... Anyway, getting back to our spooky news, there was a whole new movie trailer that dropped this week, and it's an M. Night Shyamalan joint. Some of you might call that boo! I call it yay! I have my issues with Knight and a lot of his movies, but I can't deny that I find his approach really interesting, and I really like his first batch of movies. The Sixth Sense still totally slaps. Rewatch that one if you haven't in 20 years. Unbreakable is actually even better. I love the pacing of that movie. You don't get pacing like that anymore. And you know what? I really love Signs. The ending aside, Signs is a really effective, fun thriller. Some of the best scares of its decade. I don't know. I like that one a lot. But anyway, it helps that Knight, he casts really interesting actors that you wouldn't expect in the movies that they're in. Like Sixth Sense, nobody expected Bruce Willis to be in a movie like that. Nobody expected Joaquin Phoenix after Gladiator, like the next thing that you see him in is Signs, where he's playing like a soft-spoken nice guy, kind of. I don't know. But uh, Knight does that. He ge- he casts people that you wouldn't expect in that particular context, and then he gives them a lot to do. And that's what he seems to have done with his new movie. It's called Knock at the Cabin, and it's actually based on a best-selling book called uh, Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay. In the movie, Jonathan Groff and Ben Aldridge play a couple who take their daughter to a cabin for a fun, kind of nature-driven vacation, and then a group of four people come out of the woodwork, they show up, they take them hostage, insisting that they're there to stop the impending apocalypse, and the family has to help them avert the end of the world. And it's a pretty, it's a pretty tense trailer. What really sold me on this, Dave Batista is one of the four people. Dave Batista, I think we can all agree, he's a great presence in every movie he's been in thus far, but he only seldom gets to do any real, like, honest-to-goodness acting. He's mostly cast based on his physicality. Now, being a fat kid who was in high school theater and college theater... I can really relate to that. I got cast as 40-year-old men from the time I was 14 years old because 
of my physicality, and I never got to really play outside of that. So I'm, I'm thrilled here to see that we might get more of what we got from Batista in Blade Runner 2049, you know, where he got to portray, like, he got to do, like, weariness, intellect, regret, sorrow. He That role could have been played by anybody. That could have just as easily been a, a regular-sized actor. They give it to Batista, and he nailed it. He's great in the opener of Blade Runner 2049. He's actually just a really good actor, and he takes acting very seriously. And I hope that this uh, uh, knock at the cabin might be the uh, beginning of a new chapter in his career, where he's allowed to play roles regardless of their ability to choke slam people. Uh, another of the four uh, people that come out of the woods is Rupert Grint, who, I mean, wow. I haven't seen him in a dog's age. How's he doing? What prompted him to be in this? I, I always felt bad for Rupert Grint. The other two of the Harry Potter kids, they went on to such acclaim and big expectation, and he was kind of the one everybody was like, well, you know, he's a kid actor. He's doing kid acting in those movies. If he wants, he can... Take his money, pike off, do whatever he wants with himself after they're over. There was really no expectation of him becoming an adult actor. But here he is. Cool. You know, I hope the movie's good. I, I want good things for everybody involved in this, and I, I think it'll be a fun movie. I thought old was fun. There's nothing wrong with a fun thriller that the kids today label stuff like that as mid. Um, there's nothing wrong with a movie just being fine. And, you know, you watch it, you enjoy it, and then you walk away from it. Not everything needs to be the invention of cinema or a total dumpster fire. Anyway, um, the only other movie news I had was that uh, we got confirmation this week that the great, the great James Earl Jones is officially stepping down from voicing Darth Vader in future Star Wars projects. Now, this also was a confirmation that Vader's voice was done for Obi-Wan Kenobi using digital means and archive performances from Jones. They, they cobbled it together. He didn't record anything new for that show. And presumably that's going to be the plan going forward if and when Vader appears. Let's be honest, it's when Vader appears. And Jones has given his consent and his approval of that method. Um... There are plenty of people who don't like the idea of this. They think it skews a little too close to, you know, bringing Carrie Fisher and Peter Cushing back to life as PS2 characters, or even worse, digitally creating a cartoon Mark Hamill when real-life Mark Hamill himself is perfectly fine and right over there. Uh, I tend to agree with that these tricks need to be pared back. We don't need to do this. It's not necessary. It's ghoulish, and it's distracting. I mean, I had to re-watch that last episode of Mandalorian Season 2 a couple of times, because once cartoon Mark Hamill showed up, I was like, I, I, I couldn't follow what was going on in the story, because my brain was just too focused on, wow, that looks a little strange, and it's pretty good, but... The voice is a little off, and I don't know, maybe it's kind of plasticky, but it looks better than Rogue One. I'm starting to compare it to the Marvel de-aging thing. Did they do that? Or is it totally... And, and then I've just lost the last 15 minutes of the, the finale episode of a show I love. Uh, it's really distracting. Uh, this, I would argue, with James Earl Jones, different situation, I would say. 
Jones himself signing off on it holds some weight for me. And uh, while James Earl Jones is pretty much the only actor who should ever hold residence as the voice of Darth Vader, first of all, he's a man who may be leaving us soon. He's in his 90s. And they want to make sure they have a contingency for this, because while James Earl Jones might be leaving us in the next couple of years, Darth Vader certainly will not. Um, and that's kind of part of the problem, if you aren't getting my hints on it. He has a very... Uh, the, the, they're not recreating the man's voice to imitate him being alive when he might be dead. Like, they're not going to fake James Earl Jones being alive say, the way they're faking Mark Hamill still being, you know, 35 years old. It's a distinct voice for one specific character. Lots of digital layers are over the top of it already at this point. So they're just making sure that it sounds correct by using his voice. And I think that that's kind of fine. Uh, I wonder if it ends up happening with Frank Oz for Yoda next, though, right? Because if, if and when we lose Frank Oz eventually, then it's a case of, well, who's going to do the voice of Yoda? Hopefully they don't just, like, snap, you know, some, some weirdo up from the sound department who does a half-good Yoda impression. But do I want them to recreate Frank Oz as Yoda digitally like this? I don't know. That starts to feel icky all of a sudden. Is this as easy to swallow? Kind of not for me. But I don't know. It's very complicated, if you can't tell. I'm very conflicted about it. I do wish things were the way they were before, where when an actor dies or retires from acting, we just have to deal with it as the audience. We just have to move on and live with their absence. God forbid we might have a new Star Wars project without Darth Vader in it, right? Oh, goodness, what a stretch. Anybody watch Andor, by the way? It's so terrific to have a Star Wars property that's not primarily concerned with connecting itself to every single corner of the canon to appease the shit gibbons on YouTube. But anyway, thank you for your service to entertainment, Mr. Jones. You're a legend. By all accounts, you're a terrific person. And we're sorry to see you go uh, as Darth Vader and probably as most anything, but... Happy to see you leave on your own terms, I will say that, much like uh, Gene Hackman. Every time I see a new photo of Gene Hackman from, like, his daughter posts it, and he's, like, he's in his 90s, he's in retirement in New Mexico, he looks so happy and relaxed. He looks so pleased as punch to not be dealing with Hollywood anymore. And I'm glad we didn't see Gene Hackman crop up in Dirty Grandpa Part 6 last year or some nonsense like that. Anyway, let's move on to comic books. One quick story for comic books, and that's that's all we got. Um, I wanted to tell folks about this because it ticks a lot of boxes for me, and maybe you too. This comes from a preview on uh, ComicsBeat.com, one of my favorite resources for comic book industry news. It's a dark horse comic series called The Roadie. It's a supernatural heavy metal horror story from writer Tim Seeley, artist Fran Galan, and letterer El Torres. I've talked a lot about Dark Horse's Count Crowley series, about a midnight horror movie host in the 1980s who fights monsters in her spare time, and this seems like a wonderful companion story. It's a four-issue miniseries at present about a, about a rock band roadie, 
a roadie for rock and roll stars during the primo, like, 80s satanic panic era. So, you know, he tunes their guitars and carries their gear, but he also acts as kind of a necromancer who exercises the demons and ghouls that rockers are just accidentally summoning with their backwards lyrics and their transgressive guitar licks and stuff. That sounds very fun to me. Very Monster of the Week, very... uh, The lead character apparently has the power to do this because he's the seventh son of a seventh son, which I swear I've heard that before somewhere, possibly an episode of Supernatural or something. But yeah, the art looks really great. It has this washed-out, grungy color palette that really fits the subject matter and the era and the, you know, the music genre that it's exploring. Very sketchy and angular character designs, too. Kind of, you know, it, it fits. It fits with the heavy metal. It looks like something you draw in ballpoint on your denim jacket. Um, but, but, but good, though. <laughs> but very good. Um, the first issue comes out uh, tomorrow, Wednesday. New book day. Wednesday is always new comic book day. So the first issue of The Roadie is out on Wednesday. And the four-issue arc will be all through October. So check it out just in time for monster season. And hey, Dark Horse, if you're listening, give me a Count Crowley and the Roadie uh, crossover series after this. That would be awesome, and it would be fun. Actually, hey, you know something? I do have another comics news point. It's not comic books, but comic strips. Uh, Still in the same family. Scott Adams announced on Twitter that Dilbert was discontinued in 77 major newspapers recently. It probably has something to say about how big conglomerates have bought up all the local news outlets and applied sweeping changes to them. You know, the the death of the the little guy newspaper, but really I just find it kind of funny because the Dilbert guy has become a full-blown MAGA weirdo on Twitter going so far as to implying that he, this is non-MAGA stuff, this is just him being a nutcase, implying that he let his his stepson overdose or commit suicide or something, and also some weird crack about sticking his finger up his father's ass? Look, I don't know. I don't know. The man is a danger to himself and others at this point. If you see him on your timeline, run far away. I just find it funny that a couple of weeks ago he was like, I demand an explanation from the White House and the FBI regarding the raid on Mar-a-Lago, and if I don't get it in 48 hours, phase one begins, or some shit like that. And now, like, you know, a week or two later, he's like, so my dusty old comic book strip got canceled from newspapers, and I took a real big financial hit. Whoopsie. Yeah, man. Shot and chaser. Is this phase one? (laughs) Don't be a friggin' weirdo. And someone in a boardroom might not make the decision to disassociate with you and your weirdness. As we saw this week with uh, Riot Games, it's a cheap and effective way for a company to communicate to customers or users or audiences that they don't share the nutty or destructive views of the people who might associate with them. It's a lot cheaper to say we're not we're we're not going to do this anymore. Uh, yeah, don't don't be a friggin' weirdo. And your your little news uh, your little newspaper comic book strip will live forever. Case in point, Charles Schultz. Peanuts, totally fine. 
dude's Twitter feed immaculate. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but seriously, like, look at the Garfield guy, Jim Davis. That guy has no creepy politics in his social media posts. You know what he posts about? Garfield. <laughs> and, he, and it works out pretty well for him. That comic could be terrible. In some people's opinions, it totally is terrible. It's not going anywhere. It's not being dropped off of 77 newspapers. Why? Because he's not a friggin' weirdo. Or if he is, he's keeping it to himself. That was it. That was all I had. I just wanted to bash on the Dilbert guy for a bit. Uh, uh, we're going to move on to TV. Um, you know what's one of the biggest TV events in broadcasting every year? The Super Bowl. That's technically a big television thing. Uh, even if it is sports, sports, television, Super Bowl, it all ties together. I don't have to justify myself to you people. Uh, <laughs> after, after a little bit of a false start in which Taylor Swift was reportedly passed on performing the big gigantic halftime spectacular, uh, the, the NFL locked in Rihanna this week. It was a big deal. She announced it herself via Instagram with a photo of her very recognizable hand holding a regulation pig skin. Uh, is it terribly interesting? No, not really. Until you remember that Rihanna publicly turned down the job in 2019, and she went even further, stating that she would never perform at the Super Bowl. Uh, at the time, you know, it was out of solidarity with uh, Colin Kaepernick, and uh, because of the NFL's silencing of protests against police brutality, all that good stuff. And, you know, she had some pretty blunt words. She was like, I would never, I would never do that. Uh, who would I be serving when I do that? I would just be, I would be helping them and I would be shining a light on, on their stuff. And I just, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go there and serve them that way. So, uh, yeah, she's going to be the Super Bowl halftime show for, uh, for 2023. And, uh, yeah, she's got a new album coming out, I think, that needs visibility. So her agents and the label are probably like, people need to remember that you do music and that you're not just a fashion mogul. Um, so go out there and sing a couple of your old hits and stuff. And, you know, not for nothing, Jay-Z and his uh, advocacy group, Rock Nation, partnered with the uh, NFL to better balance their efforts and highlight social justice issues and put the league on the right side of such things. And I don't know, maybe the NFL's gotten better. <laughs> no, no, not, not, not really. Probably not. But, but Rihanna does have a new album coming out. So, you know, I guess her feelings on the matter are a little more malleable this year than they were that year. Um, it is what it is. I'm just scratching my head uh, from the audience perspective because I'm an old uh, I'm an old white fogey, and because the NFL does this every couple of years, they they stick to old fogey performances. Like you know, what whatever members of the Who or the Rolling Stones are still rolling, uh, they they drag those guys out, those old buckets of bones, and they play like a six minute medley of fifteen of their biggest songs, and they call it good. But every once in a while, the NFL's like, mm, I don't know. If we get someone kind of young skewing and sexy, someone who might do something attention grabbing, it might grabbing attention for us. We'd get views. People wouldn't turn us off during halftime. 
which happens a lot at Super Bowl parties that I know of anymore. People are like, who's who's playing the halftime show? Pfft, I don't want to watch that. And they click off, you know, they they turn it. They turn it to, I don't know, whatever college football game is has the misfortune of playing that day. Now, college football is usually probably done by then, right? I don't know anything about football. But anyway, you know, they really, they they want somebody who might grab attention for being young and hip and sexy, but not somebody who's going to do something, you know, wacky and crazy that's going to get the FCC on their back. So they really aim somewhere in between Katy Perry and her inflatable sharks and palm trees and nonsense and Janet Jackson and her boob. Somewhere right in the middle there. That's that's what the NFL wants. That's what uh, their their broadcast partner wants. Hopefully Rihanna will please everybody right in the middle there. But I kind of doubt it. I figure, I don't know, part of me kind of hopes it's all a false flag operation on her end. She's going to go on stage in front of millions of viewers and then say something controversial, something that matters, something possibly about the NFL and racism and police brutality. That'd be a great gotcha. That would make the, that would make the halftime show something worth tuning in for again. Um, but, uh, but now I'm starting to sound like I want more Will Smith slaps in things. And I'm not saying that I don't want that. Um, Last thing for TV, uh, this was the thing that got me right as I was about to record last night, and I was like, oh, I'll wait for tomorrow morning. Um, we got a trailer for The Last of Us, the HBO adaptation of the Naughty Dog game that justified a lot of PS4 purchases all by itself. Uh, it also justified a very good sequel and one questionably necessary remake. But I've been excited about this show because Pedro Pascal is the lead, and I thought, yeah, that's really good casting. He he can pull off playing Joel. You know, that that's going to be great. If you see a, a terrific indie sci-fi western that he was the star of a couple years ago, it's called Prospect from 2018, I believe. Check that one out. It's streaming somewhere, I guarantee. I think it might be on, like, Tubi or somewhere. Uh, it's honestly, I think that's what got him this role, rather than The Mandalorian. Uh, this, sh uh, the show, The Last of Us looks really good, really expensive. It looks very ambitious. This is kind of, it feels kind of like HBO is like, we're, we've got our new Game of Thrones, but now we need our new Westworld. And that's what The Last of Us needs to be. It needs to be the show that people tune in for because they want to go, what's going to happen? Even if they have played the game, um, but I think they're trying to pull in people that haven't played the game. This trailer doesn't seem heavy on the fan service as it is heavy on the intrigue. They cut it to a very melancholy Western song. So I think Pedro Pascal is just a guy who we've decided this is our rugged cowboy protector in non-traditional Westerns that don't take place in the old West. I'd be sold enough, but then right near the end of the trailer, Melanie Linsky pops up and she's terrific. I love her. I don't have Showtime, unfortunately, so I haven't seen Yellow Jackets, but I hear she tears it up in that. I've actually liked Melanie Linsky since going way, way back. If you've seen a little not-so-great movie called Detroit Rock City, she has a smaller part in that, along with Natasha Lyonne. Again, don't tell my wife. Yeah, no, that movie, uh, Melanie Linsky was great in it, even in a tiny role that she's in. 
I, I love her and she's really come into her own as, as a big presence on screen. She's very captivating. So looks like she might be some sort of a villain or leader of the post-apocalyptic psycho brigade or something uh, nefarious in this. She's going to be, you know, the, the, the not so cool foil to Pedro Pascal and he's not so cool himself, uh, which is part of the character. So that's cool. I'm all in on this one. I'm way more interested in The Last of Us than I am, say, House of Dragons. I think that it might end up being the best video game adaptation to date. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to plant my flag on that now. This is going to be the best video game adaptation we've ever seen up to now. That's a, it's a low bar, I realize, but I think that this could do it. This could be the first like serious video game adaptation that's good. I'm looking forward to that when it premieres at some point in 2023. Uh, go watch that trailer if you haven't already today. It was the big deal last night, but I'm sure it's going to be all over the place for the next week. And uh, that's it. That's all she wrote, my friends. That's the week according to me. Thanks for tuning in and hanging out as always. And please uh, rate and review the show wherever you listen to it. Send me some news tips to mediasandwichshow at gmail.com. Or you can tweet it at me at media sandwich. Uh, it's at media underscore sandwich on Twitter. Along with your Star Trek casting choices for the Next Generation crew. Help me out with that. I'm curious what you think. And please check out everything over at www.media-sandwich.com for reviews, recommendations, fun stuff therein. Until next week, I am Kyle Martinak, and I am going to go get me a sandwich. It's happening right now. Turkey.